Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Squad Trambui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay. Uh... <laughs> It's it's funny we've put this water cooler together and every week we have these categories. We we always start off with what we've been doing, and since the pandemic, like almost nobody puts any entries into what we've been doing because apparently we've all been doing nothing. But uh, I I did do one thing this past week. I recorded this cooking vlog, my first cooking vlog because as you know I run a. YouTube channel with my girlfriend Ketra called Ordinary Adventures. Uh, before the apocalypse, it focused on us going to theme parks and movie events and you know cool cool things around the world. And now the world doesn't exist, so we are filming stuff inside our condo. And uh, you know the ideas that we're coming up with. Uh, it, it, it's funny, like we're we're looking at books. We're recording. <laughs> videos about looking at books uh one of the latest ones we decided to do is we decided to do a cooking series uh where we're trying to recreate some of the recipes of some of the food that can be found in star wars galaxy's edge so this past week we did that and in prep for that we actually went shopping because we needed to get uh you know we hadn't gone shopping like since the beginning of this pandemic. So we needed to get like a core group of stuff that we needed for the next month or however long this is going to last. And we went to a couple different stores. Uh, the, the first store we went to was the, this grocery store called Ralph's and it's on sunset Boulevard. And this is actually a Ralph's that's known as rock and roll Ralph's because it's proximity to this huge guitar center where all the musicians go, like it's it, it's a, a big thing. Actually, John August, the screenwriter uh, who wrote Go, he based the grocery store in Go off of this Ralph's, and it's always kind of like a party kind of like atmosphere. It's more of like 
a fun party and you don't know who you're going to run into. You usually see celebrities there and stuff. Uh, we went there because it's usually we do our grocery shopping at Target's before this pandemic. But we decided to go there because it's it's a much bigger selection. And uh, I, it was a disaster, guys. <laughs> you can see in our video, we put a couple clips. Uh, there was just so many people there. Nobody was uh, taking part in the six-foot rule. We felt so uncomfortable. We left after like a few minutes. It was just like so, it, so uncomfortable. So we went to another Ralph's, which was much more dead. It was much more like the, the, the cashiers had like those, those guards, those plastic guards up, and we were able to find uh, most of our ingredients there um, and most of the stuff we needed for the next month. We weren't just doing this for a vlog, um, but yeah. So we recorded this vlog uh, doing cooking, which we don't. Do that often, anyways. So it's funny that we are doing a cooking series because it's like, you know, you expect like good cooks to be doing cooking content. Like I expect HT to be showing me how to cook. Uh, you know, all these interesting things that I see on her Instagram. But like, we we cook like a couple times a week. We we are like not the definition of what you want to see from a cooking channel, and um. So we attempted to to make this Ronto wrap recipe. Ronto wrap is this this snack, or actually, I guess it's a meal that they serve in Galaxy's Edge at Ronto Roasters. It is a pork sausage. It's in, in a pita, and there's a lot of different ingredients inside it. I'm not going to go over them, but you can go watch the video. Things went wrong. We had to remake things. Uh, it, it, we've gotten a lot of. It's strange since this pandemic, like, you know, we've been trying to like we've been flailing our arms and like, how do we pivot? And like, what what do we do with this channel that was mostly about us going to places with lots of people, which we can't go to? And it, it's just funny that this this cooking vlog has gotten so much. Uh, I mean, it hasn't gotten a ton of views, but it, it it's gotten a lot of like love from the viewers of the channel. So I, I think we're going to do more of them. I just want to say I really enjoyed your cooking vlog, and I liked that you our guys aren't you know great cooks or anything, and just, like watching you guys kind of stumble through that. I'm not insulting your cooking skills, by the way. I think it just makes it more relatable and fun, and um, it was it's probably one of my favorite videos that you guys have done. I really enjoy it. I just watch a lot of cooking vlogs, so I just really enjoyed that genre. So I like that you guys are doing that. I'm excited to see more of them. Well, I just ordered a blender, so we're gonna try to make uh, the blue milk from Galaxy's Edge. But, you know, people are saying, like, it's, it's interesting to them because any moment something can go wrong. Like, <laughs> at one point in this vlog, like, Kitra, like, adds, like, whole peppercorns to, like, a sauce. And, like, we got so many comments from people who, like, were screaming at their, like, televisions and computers being like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, watch as we as we mess up and hopefully in the end succeed. I'm not going to spoil how this turned out. But you'll have to go watch the video. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But that's that's probably the most exciting thing that I've been up to this week. Uh, no one's been reading anything, so let's let's move right into what we've been watching. And I guess let's start this off with the Tiger King and I. This is the Netflix special that is kind of like a you know they they released the Tiger King, which is this docu series. I guess Netflix is trying to claim that it is the most watched documentary of all time i'm not sure if that's 
the most popular documentary in history. I'm not sure if that's uh, correct or not, but who knows? Um, they, within like a week or two, you know, of this series becoming popular, they decided to create this reunion show, which was filmed at home with uh, Joel McHale hosting, and he's interviewing people over Zoom or Skype, whatever it is, and everybody's wearing AirPods, and it's, uh, I will say this, I I really liked Tiger King. I really enjoyed the, the, the train wreck that it was. I I do understand that some people, including myself, have problems with like how the world is kind of idolized joe exotic and how uh, it kind of feels icky it makes me feel icky about the documentary but i still think the documentary is good the series is good the show however i think is a miscalculation in many ways first of all it's hosted by joel McHale, who is a comedian and he's kind of mocking these people it's none of the main stars from the documentary series it's all the like uh b and c level uh characters and it's like you know he's asking them like how does it feel to be famous now and it it just feels like super icky and weird uh it it also feels like and i want to say also that i am i am a fan of reunion shows like i watch i don't watch a lot of reality television but some of the things i watch like survivor or even like, you know, recently on Netflix, that Love is Blind. Like, this stuff is shot many months ago, maybe even over a year ago. And it's it's cool to get caught up and learn what these characters that you were invested in have been up to in the, the time since the ending, you know, since they started to go into post-production and edit these these shows and documentaries. And um, I know we've gotten a lot, about, a, lot, a lot of that already on Twitter as this show kind of like became a you know, cult hit, but there really isn't a lot here, which is kind of strange. It's very raw. There's lots of swearing. It doesn't feel polished, planned, or edited. It, like, feels very weird, and I know we're in weird times. Uh, I, I do like that it does get a little bit more into the animal abuse that took place at the zoo, and it talks about Joe killing healthy tigers because he needed more cage space, uh, shooting them in the head, uh, and... It's um, it. It's also weird because usually these reunion shows, everybody's in the same space, and you have these interesting interactions of these people that haven't seen each other for a year, getting back together and reminiscing and, and telling stories. And you don't get that here because they're all on their own like Skype line, and it's 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 basically one on one interviews. And uh, I guess the, the best interview of, the, of this show was the producer uh, of. The reality TV show that was that was trying to make a reality TV show about Joe Exotic, and he was actually telling some really good stories. But aside from that, I would honestly say this is a skip. Uh, Brad, you also saw this. What, what did you think? Um, yeah, I thought roughly the same thing. It just it strikes such a weird tone because you know the documentary itself is kind of made to be uh, funny and does you know kind of mock how weird all this is in addition to how terrible it is. But there's something about Joel McHale that just, like, he's far too smarmy and sarcastic, I think, to host something like this. And it just made it feel that much more trashy. And he's a terrible interviewer. I don't know if he came up with all these questions himself, aside from the ones that they pulled from, you know, certain Facebook, quote-unquote, fans. Um, But, yeah, they were just some of the most 
mundane, you know, even inane questions that like didn't matter. And I didn't really find much interesting about what they talked about. Like you said, the the producer who was working on, you know, a, a reality series about Joe Exotic um, before the documentary, you know, came along was the more interesting part. But otherwise, it just it just wasn't nearly as interesting as the documentary itself and just felt lazily put together and, and tacked on. I wish they would have taken just taken more time and waited to do like a proper follow up and see where everybody really is now and may, may do like an extra documentary episode about stuff that's happened since then because so, it just yeah it just didn't feel like it was a a good production yeah i feel like i didn't learn anything new about what has happened since the events either yeah the, the only thing that i think might have been a little bit interesting is in the docuseries there's at one point i guess spoilers for tiger king coming up but at one point joe's husband shoots himself in the head and in the series that is kind of left a little bit like ambiguous over like if that was intentional or not and here the people talking about it was clearly no he was not sure that he didn't think that there was a bullet in the gun like am i right in saying that or it's been a couple weeks since i've seen tiger (laughs) king but i i believe in the documentary like it was very kind of unclear if it was like committing suicide or not yeah i mean even so i I think that the the situation is still speculative because the guy who witnessed it doesn't really know for sure but he, he he only talks about seeing what appears to be a surprised expression on his face shortly after you know when obviously his brain probably felt the shot and the pain before he died. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's rather unsettling, but it's tough to say because even if you w- had planned on doing it, I'm sure the natural response of the body is one of like, Oh my God. Um, so it's, you know, who, who knows? Yeah. Anyways. So I don't think we can recommend the tiger King and I, are, are you on the same place in, in that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just not really worth it. It's, it's a breezy, um, you know, 45 minute watch. And like, if you're really that invested in Tiger King, you know, maybe just, just for your own, you know, completest, you know, uh, brain, you know, watch it. But otherwise I just don't think that there's anything interesting there. I feel like Joel McHale should have went to the internet and like asked for like questions for these people. Well, it looks like they did. They did some of that because he kept saying, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Here, here, here's a question from a Facebook fan, but who knows how they did that or, you know, and I'm, I'm sure they probably couldn't dig into like the real nitty gritty of certain things, probably for legal reasons, I would imagine. But yeah, like I just have so many questions from that show, like that, that guy that owns the shop, the, 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 the bigger dude, like what is that shop? Anyways. Uh, okay. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Brad and Ben, you both watched Upgrade. Uh, Let's start with Ben. Ben, what did you think of Upgrade? Uh, I really, really liked this movie a lot. I, you know, this has been on my list of things to see ever since people had been talking about it. I just, I miss it in theaters and it's on HBO Go right now. So um, I, I checked this one off the list and it was, uh, man, I thought this movie was a lot of fun. It it reminded me a little bit of uh, the beginning of The Matrix where, uh, when Morpheus is telling Neo exactly what to do and, and where to go over the phone, because, you know, the movie is about this guy whose wife is murdered and he gets this chip implanted in his head. And he has this weird relationship with this, this technology that's now, you know, embedded in his body where 
it can take control of his body and and he can become like a Jason Bourne style, you know, martial like badass martial artist kind of thing. Um, but there there are moments where this computer chip is is sort of like telling him the best way to go about. Uh, it's really like a like a like a B movie detective story, but with you know technology. It kind of reminded me of like the original Terminator in that way too, where it's sort of like. Um, it had things to say about the way that we interact with technology, but it's all wrapped up in this sort of B movie package. But, um, and it's like about obsolescence and, and the main guy is this guy who, who really likes working with his hands and, and like builds cars in a, a futuristic society where, you know, uh, auto driving cars are sort of like the, the primary means of conveyance for people. Um, so it has a lot on its mind while also being, you know, gory and like this crazy, uh, like fun action movie too. So I really dug it. Brad, what'd you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely thought the same thing. It's, um, it's on a, Jacob had recommended th this, I think a while back because this movie is essentially like a really good version of Venom. Uh, a lot of the back and forth between Logan Marshall green and the computer system inside of him that comes from this chip yeah, that communicates with him operates a lot of the same way uh, in the way that the symbiote talks to Eddie Brock in Venom. But it's just pulled off in such a better way and more stylishly shot. Um, it's there's gnarly violence, and yeah, it's just it's a, it's a really cool badass kind of movie. It has flares of like RoboCop and Terminator and The Matrix and stuff. And just I was so impressed and captivated by Logan Marshall Green's physicality throughout this movie because the way he moves, he really has this unnatural robotic movement down when the chip takes control of his body. And he's walking around because he's he's a quadriplegic after this uh, attack on him and his wife. And so he can only walk when the chip is active. And when he moves so calculated, it's just it's done so crisply. Um, and it's just, yeah, uh, I, I love the, um, this movie. And like you can see flares of like what, what um, you know, Lee Wanell would put into Invisible Man. And I, I would love to see more sci fi, you know, tech based thrillers like this from from him in the future. Yeah, I, I really love this film when it came out in 2018. I think it was like number 15 on my top 15 of that year. Uh, it didn't get it didn't get enough talk about like, I, I think because it's a genre film and it's a little bit gritty and uh, I, I wouldn't say it's as elevated as uh, to, to get like the buzz that you normally get from that kind of that kind of talk. But it, I don't know. I would highly recommend this. Oh, where can this be seen? Is this like on HBO? Yeah, HBO yeah. Go is where I watched it. Okay. Next up, let's talk about Run. Chris, you saw this? Oh, uh, yeah. I actually reviewed it for the site, and I just put my name here because I saw Ben had watched it, too. So I've actually seen multiple episodes. But, uh, Ben, what did you think? <laughs> I really, really like the show a lot. It comes from, is it Vicky Jones? Is that the name of the, the creator, yeah. I think? Yeah, and um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, her name was like, blasted all over the marketing as like you know from phoebe waller bridge and it, really she's just an executive producer on this and it's not like she created the show or anything but i think he's and i, I from you know the next time on previews and stuff like that it seems like she has a role in the show as well so she shows up as an actress in the in the, in the series but um I was very impressed with what Vicky Jones was able to put together here. It's it's basically like a, a thriller romance starring uh, Donald Gleason and uh, Merritt Weaver. 
And both of those people are sort of like, I mean, even though Donald Gleason has been in the Star Wars trilogy, he's still sort of like a low key. I, I think of him more as like an indie kind of actor than like a blockbuster performer. And and uh, Merritt Weaver is still in my mind, sort of like an up and coming, you know, she's been in, in several things. And she's been great in a lot of things, but she's not like a, a household name yet. But it's so cool to see, you know, character actors like that that I love getting center stage in a in a big HBO show that looks like pretty, uh, you know, like a like a prestige HBO show. And and I love the the sort of um, the romance element of it because these two knew each other back in the day, but it's sort of ambiguous at least after the first episode exactly what their relationship was and and how you know what what went down back in the day but they're reunited now and sort of on the run leaving their lives behind to like go off and run away and be together or something and you get the sense that that's not going to exactly work out well but uh i'm just really happy with this first episode i thought it was like one of the better pilots that i've seen in a long time so um chris does it get better or what did you think about the first episode do you remember like i know you probably watched several but I, I love this show. I think it's great. And it's it's funny and it's like really like sexy in a way that like a lot of modern shows are not like they have like great chemistry together. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's funny and it gets it gets weirder and more violent as it goes on. Like you're not going to expect where this is going. So uh, if, if you have not watched Run out there, folks, you need, you need to check this out. It's definitely one of HBO's better shows. And it's really quick. Dude. It's like half hour show. So you like, you, you breeze through it. I've not yeah. seen a trailer for this. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, I hate to do this to you guys, but is there something you can compare this to, to give me like what this would be kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the before trilogy, but funnier, <laughs> I guess you could say it's sort of like that. It's like all three before movies in one story. Cause there's a train and they used to be a couple and, uh, but it's, it gets weirder than that. And um, it's, I don't want to like give it away, but it, it turns yeah. into kind of like a thriller after a while. It, it's yeah. Just... I've seen, I've seen some people bring up uh, Hitchcock comparisons too. So, uh, I mean, that could just be because of the whole, whole like strangers on a train thing, even though they're not exactly strangers. And I haven't seen enough of the show to know, you know, exactly what those thriller elements are. But Peter, I think you would like it a lot. You should definitely check it out. Yeah. I mean, I definitely need stuff to watch, uh, but you guys took the time to rewatch parasites uh, why? Because <laughs> it's on Hulu now. Uh, it, it dropped on Hulu, and that seemed like a big deal. And uh, this movie freaking won Best Picture, and I cannot believe that that happened earlier <laughs> this year. Like, still rewatching it now, it's like, man, they really got it right this time. Chris, what did you think about rewatching it? Yeah, my my wife wanted to rewatch it. I wanted to rewatch it, and even though I own it on Blu-ray, I you know it came on Hulu, so we just watched it there. And yeah, it's it's even better than I remember it being. And yeah, like you said, I can't believe this one best picture. And I remember when it won best picture, I was like, ah, is this a sign that the world is getting better? And the answer was no, it was a fake out and everything actually got worse. So I actually think Paris, like winning best picture, like broke the universe and made things like go off the rails. It was like, you can have this, but everything from here on out is going to go swiftly downhill but parasite still a good movie we need to go back and, and, and make the trade for the sake of the universe chris <sighs> what else what would you be willing to trade parasites win for to fix the world peter i can't even remember what else was nominated i don't know 
Uh, <laughs> would you be willing, Chris? Would you be willing for the the Joker to beat out Parasite? If, if it's the world, yeah, if it fixed oh, the world, would you would you make that tough. sacrifice? I don't know. That's a tough one. I don't know how I feel about that. Thousands of deaths on one hand, or Joker in the other. I know. It's uh, how can you how can you decide between those two? If Joker had won Best Picture, I felt feel like Trump would have won would win re-election in twenty twenty. That's just like my sort of feeling about uh, if Joker won. Well, he still hasn't not one so uh okay anyways uh what have i been watching this past week i watched dynamo beyond belief this is a three-part mini series that is available on sky tv in the uk that's right even though there's a lockdown and you can't leave this country i somehow found a plane went over to the uk so i could watch this show uh, because it's not available in the U.S., so I I I I, I did that somehow. Uh, I'm here to report that it is really good. This is a a, a magic special. Uh, I know I, I I am a huge fan of magic, but I will say this is a magic special. I think that should would be of interest to people that like movies and like like this is the most cinematically shot magic special i've ever seen i think it might be the first magic special i've ever seen that is presented in uh 2.35 by uh to one widescreen so it's like the ultra widescreen of like the big cinema epics uh it is it follows this guy named dynamo who is a big magician in the uk even though most people in the u.s don't know who he is he's kind of like the david blaine of of the uk he's a huge guy and it follows his story and it's it's actually interesting because it's not just a magic special where he's going around doing tricks randomly to people this follows a real story that feels almost like a documentary it has like this documentary feel to it um he does go to these exotic international locations and do magic so there is that but there is this um this arc to it there's a story here where he is he he got sick a few years back uh he he has uh Crohn's disease and and because of that he got food poisoning and you find out about that at the beginning of this first episode this is a three-part uh series where i think each episode is like 40 minutes long and it almost takes place it almost feels like one big movie uh he he got food uh poisoning and i know you're saying like oh food poisoning whatever but uh he got really sick he was in the hospital for i think weeks and the medicine that he had to take to fix himself basically made him uh i don't know how much i want to ruin of this but he had a dramatic physical transformation that is like uh almost unbelievable and there's an arc here there's there's animated sequences put in to do the flashback kind of stuff but a lot of it is actually captured like some of it's captured on this phone the magic's captured in this like very cinematic um documentary style that i like i have not seen magic captured in this way i think it's really good um this is kind of a comeback tour of sorts uh you know it's him recovering uh Sadly, after the the making of this, he actually got uh, the coronavirus. I think he has recovered, though, so that's good news. Uh, the I will say this: the the last episode, the last trick on the last episode, has a trick that has to do with the wall at the Mexican border of the U.S. and uh, it is pretty cool. Um, I don't know. I would highly recommend this if if anybody can fly over to the U.K. somehow. 
and, get, and watch this show, Dynamo Beyond Belief. I don't know. Maybe it's on YouTube. I'm not going to recommend, you know, pirating stuff. But, but yeah, it, it might be available somewhere if you search for it. Uh, so, yeah, I watched that. Dynamo Beyond Belief. I, I highly recommend it. And the only other thing I really watched this week was the Simpsons short film Playdate with Destiny. And this was attached to Onward. But when I saw Onward at a press screening, they did not show it. And when Onward debuted on Disney Plus, it was not attached to it either. Um, so this has now come to Disney Plus, and you can now watch it. Um, this is directed by David Silverman, who you know directed a lot of Simpsons stuff, including the Simpsons movie. Um, this is a story about Maggie developing her first crush. It's very cute. It's uh, presented almost entirely as a sh- silent short film. I think um, this really feels like... Uh, elevated in a way it doesn't feel like disposable it feels like uh it deserved to be a theatrical short film and um it really has kind of a classic uh feel to it i would highly recommend it it's like you know pretty short and it's on disney plus so if you have disney plus check out playdate with destiny but it's not really just like you know a you know just for laughs kind of like it really feels like it is the simpsons trying to do something a little bit artsy uh so yeah recommend it brad what have you been watching um so in addition to upgrade i also took the time to finally check out the skywalker legacy which is the feature length documentary uh, about the making of the rise of skywalker which also kind of doubles as a documentary about the legacy of star wars and just the the staying power that the franchise has had since it started and wrapping up the franchise, uh, at least the Skywalker saga part of it, as a whole. Um, it does this really uh, great job of juxtaposing footage from uh, the promotional tours and the making of the uh, original trilogy with like cool outtakes and B-roll footage from the set of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and cutting back and forth between that and the making of Star Wars. And it really does a nice job of um, matching the, the visual poetry that George Lucas constantly talked about uh when he was you know matching what happened in the prequels with things that happened in the original trilogy um and it really lays out you know things in rise of skywalker that they tried to create you know even more of that as far as wrapping things up you know with bringing back the emperor and just certain story elements and things they brought back and as somebody who uh doesn't really like rise of skywalker very much at all i thought that this felt like such a a much more satisfying way to end the Skywalker saga. And it, it, it made me forget how much I disliked certain elements of The Rise of Skywalker as I was watching them work on it. And I, do, I, I, I have a complete, you know, appreciation for how much work went in this movie, no matter how disappointed I was from it, um, to the point where I was kind of surprised just the lengths to which they go for certain things. Like, I could not believe that they created an entire practical snake creature for that cave sequence where Ray uh, shows off her force healing powers only to completely replace it with visual effects in post-production. Like they spent so much time making it and setting it up and, and, and having puppeteers inside of it and working it all so it can be replaced with visual effects. It seems kind of like a waste of money, especially <laughs> since it's, since it's only 
to give the actors something to respond to. But I feel like you can do that so much easier with so much less less work. And so that just that felt really weird to me. But there are just cool little details in here. I really loved the the thing where they pointed out all the the Easter eggs for John Williams cameo referencing his uh, various Academy Award wins for scores over the years. And yeah, it's um it's just a really great look behind the scenes. And it uh, it was a nice way to be reminded of like why I'm a Star Wars fan, even though I uh, you know was severely disappointed by rise of skywalker yeah what else have you been uh, watching i went i had a double feature of of comedy sequels i was building um a star wars lego set which i guess is something that i've been doing that i could have talked about but it's just me building a lego set so who cares um and i wanted to put on something in the background that i didn't really have to pay much attention to and could still you know kind of enjoy moderately so, so i started with super troopers 2 and uh, I'm not as big of a Super Troopers fan as a, a, a lot of people who love the first movie are. I think it's pretty funny, but I have a lot, some friends who just love that movie and think it's absolutely hilarious. And I think it's fine. Uh, it's, I think it's an amusing uh, comedy. And some people ha who are big fans of the first one said they didn't really like the second one that much, but I wanted to give it a shot. And I honestly feel like it's pretty on par with the first one. It's just as goofy. There's some good callbacks to the original without uh, going overboard um it's the the new cast that plays the uh the canadian characters who are part of it are really funny um like tyler lee bean is in it and will will sasso and uh rob lowe and they all kind of do a little over the top different kinds of canadian and french canadian accents there's one scene that i was absolutely cracking up over where three of the canadian mounties are having this argument where uh one of them is pretending not to know that danny devito um, played two two different characters, and they think it's a person, and they just get more and more angry about it. There's some pretty amusing bits in it, um, but it, otherwise, you know, I, I think it's just you know pretty average, right on par with the first Super Troopers. Uh, and then I watched Daddy's Home too, which is a Christmas movie, and I kind of forgot it was a Christmas movie, so it felt weird to watch it now. And uh, I kind of enjoyed the first one. I felt like it was a little too over the top in the first half, and kind of found more certain footing in the second half and this one kind of works the same way because there's just a little too much like slapstick comedy in this to make you know kids laugh and get like the lowest common denominator of comedy that families can enjoy uh just like wild antics that will ferrell gets into by hurting himself and doing stupid things um but there's there are some funny moments in here and <clears throat> even though we can all agree mel gibson is a complete dirtbag bad kind of person it it I was frustrated because it sucks that he's he is so terrible because he's really good at being genuine and pulling off roles like this where he's being funny um, and authentic and it, it almost makes you forget how awful he is. Uh, so it's a bummer that he's such a, such a terrible person. John Lithgow is really funny in this movie too. Um, yeah, John Cena gets uh, an extended role which I enjoyed. So it's it's fine for families. It is it is what it is. Um, some decent laughs, but you know, not anything to to really uh, write home about. Okay, uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I'll start off with a movie that kind of blindsided me by how much I liked it. This is a uh, this is a Bezel Booth. That's B E L Z E B U T H. It is a Shutter film. Uh, Shutter streaming service uh, picked it up. It is a Mexican horror film. It's streaming there exclusively. So if you're not a Shutter subscriber, you like horror films, this is a one you should absolutely subscribe to check out. Uh, I was kind of bowled over by it. I 
I was not expecting to enjoy it, but one thing I've, I've learned is that Shutter originals tend to be at their worst worth watching because the Shutter curation team tends to have interesting, varied taste. And this is a movie uh, from Emilio Portes, the director, uh, who, from what I seem to have gathered, did mostly comedies in Mexico before this. And this is a surprisingly lavish, big budget, uh, nearly two hour long religious horror film. It has like a scope to it. It, it feels like epic in a weird way. And it, it, it takes itself very seriously while being very scary. And the basic gist is that um, it's about a jaded Mexican detective uh, investigating a series of uh, child massacres where groups of children are being killed en masse. And they're all connected and there's a religious conspiracy. And Tobin Bell from the Saw series is a uh, seemingly insane priest who may be involved in some way. And the first half is a uh, sort of extremely dark police procedural as he essentially teams up with an investigator from the Vatican to figure out what's going on. And then things take a wild turn the back half where it becomes a sort of religious horror riff on one of the most famous films of all time that I'm not going to spoil here because you've seen it. And you will recognize what movie it's riffing on once you've seen it, including the final scene where it seems to directly quote it. But I was so pleasantly surprised by what it became. And it was so unnerved by it. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but this movie feels dangerous and blasphemous in a way that most religious horror films, you know, kind of skirt around. There's a scene in an abandoned church involving a statue, like a decrepit statue of, of Jesus on the cross that left me genuinely shaken. Uh, it is, it was upsetting stuff. And, and it, uh, I, I was really uh, taken aback by this movie. It, it's a scary, upsetting movie. And uh, it's a movie that opens, literally opens with a woman possessed uh by demons stabbing infants to death in a, in a hospital nursery, all off screen, but still really intense. So if, if that, if child violence is a, a no, a, a no deal for you, you should definitely stay away from this movie. But Jake, it, Jacob, I think you just like eliminated probably 95% of the people listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, that's why I'm warning people. Cause it, it is genuinely, it's, it's an upsetting movie. It is a, it is a, it is a tough horror movie. Uh, but I was incredibly happy, um, that I stuck with it uh, because it was, it ended up being just such a, a scary, clever, like genuinely unsettling experience. And Chris, we talked about this very briefly online, but I really want to hear your responses. I know you've seen this as well. I mean, yeah, everything, everything you just said is pretty much on the money. It's a very um, aggressive movie. Like the, the sound design and uh, the visuals, they're like, it's almost like they, they like put this, through like a simulator to figure out how to make a movie that will just like break you down as you watch it. It's just, it's not a fun movie, but it's, it's it's like, if you're looking for like a genuinely disturbing horror movie, like not just like, Oh, that was a fun horror movie. If you're looking for like something that's really going to unnerve you, uh, that's, that's what this movie is. And, and like Jacob said, it's not going to be for everyone. Like even I had a little trouble sticking with it. And I, you know, I'm like, I'm dead inside, so nothing bothers me. But this this is not an easy watch. But if, if you're a if you're a horror fan, I think you'll you'll enjoy it. Yeah, if you're like like as Chris said, if like you're really devoted to the genre and you're like and you're always complaining about how weak sauce American horror films can be, uh, Bells of Booth is uh, is evidence that you know if pretty much this is essentially if, if the Conjuring. Uh, was made by people who did not care about making $150 million at the box office. They just wanted to really upset everybody possible. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's streaming exclusively on Shudder. Uh, 
So get Shutter, damn it, if you haven't already. But um, moving on, my wife and I did a big binge of uh, found footage horror films. It's our favorite thing. We love binging found footage horror films, searching for the good ones, going through dozens of terrible ones. And we kick things off by revisiting Promo Activity for the first time in a long time. And uh, I'll be brief. The movie is super famous. Everybody's seen it. And it does what it does so right, which somebody get wrong, which is uh, there's just enough dead air and it's just boring enough to feel real. And that seems like a weird thing, but a weird thing to say about a movie I like. But um, the fact that minutes go by in this like 86 minute long movie where nothing happens and you're a little bored, you're like, okay, what's going on? Why is this important? And the answer is that it's not important. It's just lending um, realism and, and credibility to the fact that you're watching a, a found film. This is like lost in the sequels. And I enjoy enough of the sequels. Uh, productivity series, the odd numbered ones are the good ones. One, three, and five are the good ones. Two, four, and six are the bad ones. Uh, so but even the, the future good ones break a lot of rules. They're, they follow very traditional structures and arcs for you know a horror film. Whereas productivity, the first one, uh, it feels like you're watching somebody's home videos in a really uncomfortable way. And it really still does work. Uh What's the group uh, read on Paranormal Activity these days? Uh, just the first one for right now. I still love love that movie. Um, I, I think that it's was I mean, obviously you know really brought in the the found footage you know craze. A, after that, it became a big hit. Um, and I, I think that just the lack of really seeing a lot of what happens in that is what really makes it scary. You're left to let uh, leave your imagination and the sound. You know that that. It, they use to create instill fear. You know, there's that subtle sort of like, I don't know if you would call it like a hum or whatever, when you know that like that demon is in the room and you're just waiting for something to happen. There's so much suspense there. And I, I think it's incredibly well done. All right. And that's uh, streaming on, uh, goodness, I think we watched on Amazon. Uh, so we moved on to the possession of Michael King, a movie I had never heard of, but my uh, wife wanted a religious horror film for her birthday yesterday. So I did my research, and it was just found footage and religious horror, so thumbs up. Um, and it's basically about an atheist whose wife dies in an accident. So he starts to make a documentary proving that supernatural doesn't exist by indulging in as many demonic ceremonies as possible and summoning demons and proving that there are no demons. Naturally, it leads to him being completely possessed and destroying his life. And uh, it's one of those things where it breaks all the found footage rules that I think productivity does well. It's very loud, very in-your-face, and despite being found footage, it's structured in a way where clearly someone had to have found this footage and edited it into a movie and added a score and stuff, which, which drives me crazy. But it actually is pretty scary. In the lead role, the guy playing Michael King, uh, I'll pull up his name right now, the actor's name is uh, Shane Johnston. It's a solid performance, and he's really giving it all. And the movie is scary. It's just, uh, it's just sloppy, and it makes me... I wish it followed the, the, the logical rules of if someone is filming, you know, their experiences, how that actually would just be structured as a film. Is anyone else here seen the possession of Michael King? Uh, I have, but I don't really remember what happens. I saw it such a long time ago, but I, I just pulled it up and I remember like the screenshot I saw. I remember that, but I don't remember <laughs> what the hell happens in the movie. So it did not stick with me that well. Yeah, well, before credits, it's only like an hour, 17 minutes long. So it's it's on Amazon streaming now, if you remember. Uh, it's The Possession of Michael King. Uh, moving on to a very bad <laughs> found footage movie, Happy Camp. A Drew Barrymore-produced uh, found footage movie. Really? But it got, yes. Apparently she produced, a, from what I understand, this and a few other movies, like a few other like low-budget horror movies were produced by Drew Barrymore in the mid-2000s, in the mid-2010s. So uh, this movie is... um. It is very short. It's an hour and 15 minutes long. And it's about a guy who returns to his hometown with a, with his documentarian girlfriend. 
to uh, remember his uh, brother who's abducted when they were kids in a in a rural California city where hundreds of people have disappeared over 25 years. And the first hour of this movie is setting up the mystery of what happened to the kids, where it happened, where it could have happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in the last 10 minutes, it's Bigfoot. Sorry, guys, they bury the lead, but it's Bigfoot at the very end, a very bad CGI Bigfoot who kills everybody. That's Happy Camp. Don't watch Happy Camp. <laughs> yeah, it's very bad. Um, uh, but a movie I was really impressed by, this is actually um, one of the uh, oldest found footage horror movies out there, and that's the last broadcast from 1998. came out a year before Blair Witch. Uh, even though Blair Witch was being filmed at the time, so there's no, even though people like to say that last broadcast influenced Blair Witch, it did not. Oh, is this but, the one about like the Tasmanian Devil or something? Uh, the, the Jersey Devil, yeah. Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> what about Daffy Duck? I want a found hooded horror movie about the Tasmanian Devil. <laughs> I'm sure there's a, probably a parody of this, but uh, sure. yeah, I remember seeing this and I remember not liking it. <laughs> uh, it it's interesting because it's aged poorly in that it was it was shot for like eight hundred dollars in the in the late nineties. Uh, but it really is genuinely interesting because it is structured as a finished documentary about a um about a group of people who went missing in the woods while filming a TV special about the Jersey Devil, the urban legend of New England. And I you mean New Jersey. New Jersey. Is New Jersey not part of New England? I can never remember. No, it's it's yeah. definitely not. Okay. Well scratch that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is a uh it's not particularly scary, and it's not necessarily good by modern standards. Uh, my wife was bored pretty silly by it. Uh, but in terms of uh, it, it's really it's in fact it feels like a finished documentary, and it's like an investigative thing, and it, it ended going in a very bizarre, strange direction in the final stretch that I appreciated, and explains why you're watching what you're watching. Uh, I wish more movies would. Uh, take a cue from this in that finding unique structures for how they present a found footage horror film but at the same time it's for completionists only you shouldn't seek this out if you like want like a good time of the movies it's really just for for, for additional study if you're a weirdo like me uh chris sounds like you've seen this one too i have and i remember it was like a big deal because like you said every a lot of people were trying to claim the blair witch project ripped this off and so on and so on so i remember when they finally put this out on on vhs back in the day I got a copy and yeah, it's, it's not great. Um, and I feel like the ending is kind of a cheat, but the ending is also like the only interesting part. So it's like a, a toss up. All right. And moving on to my last found footage horror movie of this week is Frasier Park recut. Uh, it's a found footage horror movie about people making a found footage horror movie, uh, where long story short, they hire an actual psychopath to play their killer in the movie. And he was, proceeds to essentially hijack the movie and start filming on their cameras of him plotting to kill the directors. And it's it's interesting. I wish it was better. I wish it had more polish. I wish the acting from the directors who were playing themselves in the film was any good whatsoever. Uh, there's something to be said about where it goes and how it's presented. And uh, the final scenes uh, kind of, sort of, once again, lend credence to why you're watching what you're watching in a way that I found at least somewhat satisfying. Streaming on Amazon, once again, if you're like me and are trying to exhaust the found footage horror archives, it's worth checking out. But Fraser Park Recut is more interesting than it is good. Uh, so moving on from found footage horror, uh, City of the Living Dead. Uh, Chris, how do you, where do you fall on Fulci? Lucio Fulci, the Italian horror director. He's good. Uh, <laughs> you know, he has some classics and some movies which are unwatchable. But I, I love 
City of the Living Dead, I think it actually is my favorite of his films. Yeah, my wife hated it so much. She oh, made me no. turn it off. I had to finish it on my own. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like all Fulci movies, there's not this shoestring of a plot, just all about tone and just feel like you're descending into someone else's bad dream. Uh, and just so much gnarly, weird gore and a great uh, musical score. And just, I like inhabiting the gruesome, grisly, nonsensical world of Fulci and City of the Living Dead is another one of those. Uh, so uh, Chris and I are suckers for this. And has anybody else on this podcast seen the Fulci film, like the Beyond or Zombie or anything? I have not. No. Nope. Okay. Nope. Uh, a few of them are streaming on Shudder for sure. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're just... One of the side effects of a Fulci film is that up and it follows that very traditional Italian style where they didn't record sound on set. So they have actors from various different nationalities all not speaking to each other because they're, they're not being recorded on the set. They're just sort of mouthing their lines. And it just leads to like the whole thing feeling dreamlike in a way it's both accidental and, you know, intentional. So combined with the very loose plotting and nonsensical storytelling, but with like very intentional stylistic choices, th there really is nothing quite like City of the Living Dead and the other films Fulci made, uh, like I said, by accident and design. And that's really worth watching if you are an adventurous horror fan streaming on Shudder right now. But if you are not in a, uh, someone looking for niche horror films, Thor Ragnarok, uh, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame, all streaming on Disney+. Plus. Oh, sorry, Infinity, Infinity War is on Netflix. It's not it hasn't moved to Disney+, Plus quite yet. But we had a triple feature, all three of those. Uh, I think Ragnarok holds up so well. It's probably our most rewatched Marvel movie at this point, because my wife will literally just put it on. It's just like, I'll come home from work, or back in the day when I used to leave to do work things before we were all quarantined forever. But I'd just come home from somewhere and she would be watching it or I come downstairs and she'd be watching it. So I've probably seen it 30 times uh, and never gets old. Uh, and Endgame, it's still, that movie, that movie is like slam dunk. I can't believe how well it works. Uh, Infinity War hasn't aged as well in two years as I would have hoped. I think mainly because uh, Endgame is so much better and does what it's trying to do. Uh, and it, it, Endgame pulls off everything Infinity War um, can't quite master. And I think just because it's the nature of being a first half. So I think they're, they're best enjoyed back-to-back, -back, even though I think Endgame is a far superior film in just about every way. But you know what? We talk about those films a lot on this podcast, so I'll move on to um, my weekly checking with New Girl. Uh, HT, I have reached the uh, Megan Fox season, where Zoe Deschanel temporarily leaves the show to have her baby. Uh, and Megan Fox steps in for, I think, six episodes as the new roommate. And boy, howdy, do I hate it. I hate her character. <laughs> I hate her performance. I hate how she's written. I hate how she clashes with the rest of the cast and never gels with them. And for I understand, she comes back for a couple more arcs in the next season. How mad will I be by this character by the time we get to season six? You'll be madder because she does not get better. Um, it's, it is kind of an unfortunate, I think, combination of both Megan Fox's acting style and her energy and the writing for her, which is very subpar and mostly just like, oh, wow, she's hot. But um, I did enjoy her when she first came on because I feel like she had such a different energy and style, her, her sort of more dry uh, delivery and everything was so different than everyone else's um, performances, which were becoming more and more big and uh, outlandish. But after a while, it just became clear that that style was just not jiving, like not, not gelling with the rest of the cast. And it was just, uh, yeah. And when she comes back, it's, it's not much better, especially because when she and Zoe uh, share the screen, it's just very mismatched energy. Yeah, and I was doing some Googling. Um, did everybody else hate this at the time, too? And I found more than one article from, like, major pop culture websites saying, 
with Megan Fox in the show, who needs Zoe Deschanel anymore? And like articles arguing that she was better and fit the show better. And I think people in 2016 were just like crazy. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I, I'm trying to take temperature of New Girl fans four years ago because F that noise. I mean, when Zoe Deschanel comes back in episode 10 of season five, I felt like like a wave of relief that, that Megan Fox is leaving. I, I was like, it's like it's like my my old friend was back and the strange the strange intruder was gone. Like I, for a show that's a hangout show, where a show like where ninety nine percent of the enjoyment is hanging out with weirdos who you love, they have this intruder in there who does not gel with them at all. It felt genuinely genuinely invasive in a way that harmed the show for me. Can, can I ask you a question? Now spoilers for New Girl, but I'm not quite sure I'm understanding the situation. So in real life, she was pregnant, so she couldn't be on the show, right? Yeah, she's but, the way to have her baby. Yeah. But what is the storyline for Megan Fox to come in and her to leave? Zoe Deschanel's character gets called to jury duty and ends up being a, a murder case where she's sequestered for months. So they need a roommate to pay the rent. So they they call it and they encounter Megan Fox's character who is a temporary roommate. So that's so weird, silly. though. Isn't she <laughs> the like main character? Wouldn't she you like follow character. her to be sequestered for the trial? <laughs> she, she kind of is, but it does, you know. The first season is very much all about Zoe, but then the show, like the rest of the cast, kind of steps up and it becomes more of an ensemble than just about her. So it kind of, it kind of works, but at the time it was just like, where's Zoe? Yeah, I mean, uh, she's right. By this point in the show, the supporting cast is so fleshed out that they can carry the entire show on their own without her. And there is one episode without Zoe Deschanel and without Megan Fox where the show is just fine. It's like, oh, I miss Zoe Deschanel, but also I'm happy to hang out with um, Lamorne Morris and Jake Johnson and Hannah Simone and, and everybody else. Uh, but once Megan Fox comes in, it's like, oh God, what, what are you doing? Stop it. No. Wow. Yeah, that sounds bad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched Near Dark for the first time. This is Catherine Bigelow's 1987, I think. Um, it's sort of like a combination of a Western and a vampire movie. And, so uh, I've been wanting to see this for so many years and I have no idea why I waited this long, but I'm so glad that I finally checked this out. It's streaming on the Criterion channel right now. Um, guys, Bill Paxton, I mean, he died in 2017. What a huge loss that was because this dude just fucking ruled like, and this movie too, he, I wrote about this movie in our, uh, our quarantine stream column on slashfilm.com, And I said, that he's a live wire. He's like this loose cannon vampire who feels like pure danger slinking around in a skin tight leather jacket. And he is just, man, he is chewing the scenery here. This is one of my favorite Bill Pullman, uh, or I'm sorry, Bill Paxson performances. And he is just, um, he's like magnetic. I, I could not take my eyes off him, even though he's not the main character. He's sort of like the, the number one, or maybe like the number two bad guy behind, uh, Lance Henriksen's character. Um, but he's like the biggest threat of the movie by far. He's just, he feels so dangerous the whole time. And I really love this movie. I think it's, it takes the ideas of the idea of vampires in America really seriously, which is something that a lot of vampire movies don't do. And, and like the characters drive around during the day in like big vehicles where the windows are all blacked out and spray painted. So they don't you know blow up when they uh, encounter the sun. And it, it sort of like takes a, like sort of like a realistic approach you know if this were something that were actually happening what would this world kind of look like how would these characters operate in it um so and this i want to say is is catherine bigelow's like second movie or something it's, it was very early on in her filmography and there's so much confidence just brimming in every frame you feel like this is a movie that 
is definitely made by somebody who has a vision, knows what the hell she's doing, and is able to deliver just like top tier B movie fun in the best way. Um, the only downside for me is that the lead actor Adrian Pazdar, who has gone on to be in a bunch of things, including Agents of Shield and a bunch of other stuff, um, just seems like sort of like a hunk, but doesn't really bring much more to the movie than good looks to me. And I really feel like Billy Zane, at, especially at this time, would have just absolutely dominated the lead role of this movie, of this guy who gets bit and turns into a vampire and and gets like uh, sort of brought under the wing of this roving vampire troop. So, um, man, this movie is so much fun, and I, I really, really liked it a lot. Uh, Jacob, it sounds like you love this too. Yeah, it's one of my favorite horror movies. Uh, the one-two punch of the bar massacre and then the hotel shootout may be my favorite Catherine Bigelow sequence of all time. Oh, yeah, man. So, so good. Uh, so that's on uh, Criterion Channel. If you want to watch that, I would definitely recommend it. And then I also watched His Kind of Woman, which is a 1951 film noir starring Robert Mitchum and Jane Russell. Uh, this is on Turner Classic Movies. I DVR'd it, so I'm not sure if it's easily accessible elsewhere. But uh, I would recommend watching this. I was reading about it after I watched it, and evidently it had a really, really troubled production. But to me, I couldn't really tell during the movie which i think is a good sign uh the very end sort of feels a little bit different and evidently that's where a lot of the the problems came because howard hughes who owned rko at the time became like obsessed with this movie for some reason and and really like threw himself in a very hands-on way into uh creating new storylines and new characters and orchestrating super expensive reshoots and all sorts of stuff but um the main story is about uh, Robert Mitchum's character, who's this gambler who basically accepts this job where somebody's like, I'll give you $50,000 to go to Mexico and I'm not going to tell you why. And because he's a gambler who's down on his luck, he takes the job and then slowly realizes what this plot actually is, that somebody's trying to take his identity and uh, and just like kill him and then you know, uh, immigrate back into America uh, with his identity. And Jane Russell plays this uh, singer who also has this sort of mysterious past. And the two of them meet at this, um, like a resort in Mexico where all of this is, is going down. And uh, those two are really, really good in the movie. But Vincent Price, who for me anyway, is best known for like his, you know, horror movie kind of chops, uh, shows up here in a supporting role playing a, a, an actor who is basically trying to run away from his, wife and just hunt and hang out in Mexico and have a good time and uh, sleep around and do whatever the hell he wants to do. And he is this actor who is like super over the top and really, really hammy, but he uh, sort of finds himself as the action unfolds in this movie. And uh, he loves Hamlet. So he's always quoting that, but he, he like um, the whole, the whole arc of his character is that he loves uh, how it feels to actually be alive and try to help the lead character get out of this jam instead of just being a phony all the time, like he's been in his acting career. Um, and he really, I mean, talk about chewing up the scenery. Like he, he is uh, really, really fun in this movie. And Vincent Price is not, you know, he, he's often over the top in his films, but um, this one is, uh, he's in a gear that I've never seen him in before. So that's his kind of woman. And I saw that on Turner Classic Movies. Very cool. Uh, I guess we're moving on to HT. HT, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I recently watched Lady Macbeth, which is the first major feature film uh, lead role for Florence Pugh. And it's not actually in ref uh, about the Shakespeare uh, character from Macbeth, but it's based off of the um, 
novella Lady Macbeth of the Mistensk District by Nikolai Leskov. And um, it follows a uh, woman who is married to uh, a rich industrialist industrialist and kind of finds herself confined to his house and um, ordered to stay inside and essentially uh, becomes, feels entrapped and starts an affair with the, uh, essentially the stable boy. Um, And this is, um, it's named Lady Macbeth basically because it sort of embodies the character and the values of the famous villain from Macbeth. And um, it sounds somewhat, it, it first kind of starts off as like a, a steamy period piece. Um, it's set in, uh, I think, um, Victorian England or Northeastern England. Um, but it actually becomes somewhat of a horror film in a way. It's a real knockout performance from Florence Pugh. She's really uh, just excellent in this. And uh, she gives a real a real chilling and um, almost sociopathic performance as this character who starts off as a real sympathetic, almost feminist heroine, and then kind of descends um, into uh, sort of her, gets wrapped up in her own sort of machinations. And uh, it's it's really, really fantastic. It's uh, streaming on Hulu now. And uh, if you want to see Florence Pugh's just, um, first breakout role, just uh, definitely check it out if you're a Pugh fan. Uh, so that's Lady Macbeth on Hulu now. And um, I also watched Tiger Tail, which debuted on Netflix uh, this past Friday. And um, it's the directorial debut of Alan Yang, who is the co-creator for Master of None, the Aziz Ansari show. And um, if you guys remember the um, Master of None episode, Parents, for which I think they won an Emmy for that um, episode, it kind of has somewhat of the same premise. It follows... um, a a man who was a Taiwanese factory worker in the 60s and grow and moves to America and grows up to be Zima and uh, essentially uh, he leaves behind his childhood love and gets married to a woman he barely knows and ends up regretting a lot of his past decisions and um, you know works his way through his past uh, and tries to reconnect with his uh, adult daughter in the in the contemporary timeline and uh it kind of follows that somewhat similar premise of parents in that it talks about the live past lives lived of these immigrant fit parents who um the asian american generation aren't don't really know entirely or like uh come kind of closed off from and uh don't understand sort of their sacrifices and everything and um uh it expands on that um but to somewhat of a messier degree, uh, Tiger Tail is really excellent when it's in the past scenes in Taiwan, 60s, 70s Taiwan, because it's very much Alan Yang kind of uh, doing an homage to the movies of Wong Kar Wai. There's a real um, atmosphere and style that he manages to capture that feels very much like in the mood for love. Um, but the Contemporary scenes feel a little bit, um, aren't really as compelling or um, as interesting. And like there, it feels like there's a bit, a bit of a disconnect there. Um, so I feel like the movie could have done with some structural narrative smoothing over to make both timelines 
connect a little bit somehow, but it is a really, really beautiful, uh, beautifully shot film and um, captures sort of that generational divide between um, Asian American and uh, first generation, second generation uh, Asian parents and children. So uh, that's Tiger Tail streaming on Netflix now, um, and I recommend it. Um, and uh, I also, for the first time, uh, watched Misery. So this is a movie that I had not seen before, and I had been kind of nervous about watching it just because, uh, despite me diving more into horror films and liking a lot of horror films lately, I, I'm still on the sort of squeamish side, and I've always been very nervous about just watching the hobbling scene, which this movie is very famous for. So I finally decided to uh, check it out, and it's streaming on Hulu now. And um, uh, I love this movie. My God, Kathy Bates is just, so so phenomenal in this film i mean she won an oscar for this very deservedly and she just is so um terrifying and monstrous um and it's again a, a role that kind of creeps up on you too and um i absolutely loved her in this film especially even during the hobbling scene which i ended up having to somewhat close my eyes during uh but she is just so excellent and terrifying and um i was actually uh, somewhat surprised to discover that this was directed by Rob Reiner. I, um, I mean, when I'd heard of this, I'd only mostly heard of Kathy Bates' performance and the fact that it was based on a Stephen King novel. Um, but Rob Reiner, I had, I'm mostly used to seeing more lighthearted fare from him. Uh, when Harry Met Sally, The Princess Bride are some of my favorite movies. Um, and even when he does more dramatic films like Stand By Me or A Few Good Men, I feel like there is somewhat of a lighter touch to his films. And this is such a, a dark and psychologically um, claustrophobic film that uh, I that I was like a little surprised to find that it was his, his film. But at the same time, I guess I wasn't, it, it didn't feel out of step with his filmography. I, I I guess you could call him in some ways a bit of a journeyman director in that like he isn't really uh, confined to one genre. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed Misery. I love his direction. I love Kathy Bates. James Caan is also excellent. And um, I'm so happy that I, I finally got to watch it. Um, and that's uh, streaming on Hulu now. I'm sure like Everyone here who is <laughs> has something to say about misery. Yeah. So uh, either <laughs> Jacob or, or Chris, do you want to add anything about that? I just want to say, HD, you should continue the uh, claustrophobic, stuck in a room, uh, stuck in a bed, Stephen King adaptations with Gerald's Game on oh, Netflix. I don't know. I, I've heard oh, about she the can't watch loving the... I don't want to watch that. I don't want to watch Actually, that. Actually, um, HD, what you should watch is Dolores Claiborne, which is another Stephen King adaptation with Kathy Bates. And it's not uh, overly gory. It's not really even a horror movie. It's more like a really dark drama. And I think you would like that a lot because it's it's fantastic. And Kathy Bates gives another great oh. performance. So if you can find that somewhere, I, I highly recommend Dolores Claiborne. Okay. I, I rewatched Misery recently. And boy, does that movie hold up. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, excellent. like, does anybody know... like? HT is making a good point here. Like, why did Rob Reiner not follow up Misery? Like, his follow-ups to Misery, like, it, I don't think he ever kind of returned to the horror genre, did he? Well, a, a big reason Misery works so well is uh, William Goldman did the script. William Goldman was, like, one of the oh, yeah. best screenwriters of all time. So I feel like that combination is really what put it over the top. Um, but, yeah, I, there's not a lot of Rob Reiner movies I 
I love. I like some of them, but that I feel like that. You don't like Stand like, By Me? I do like Stand. I was gonna say that and Stand By Me, and I think I really like the uh, the American President with Michael Douglas. <laughs> but beyond that, there's not a lot of movies of his I love. But well, Rob Reiner also directed North, which was terrifying. <laughs> yes. So well, I'm looking at his IMDb page right now, and just this this run from '84 until um, a decade later. This is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. Like, untouchably one of the greatest runs in history, followed by North. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes downhill from there. Like, it yeah, was really bad for yeah. that. What has happened to him? Okay, anyways, HD, what else have you been watching? Well, he's actually been showing up a new girl, so. It's true. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was funny to, uh, to see. But yeah. Um, other things I've been watching is uh, while Ben and Chris have been rewatching Parasite, I embarked on a bit of a Bong Joon-ho marathon of the other films that were made available on Hulu of, of his. Uh, so I watched Mother for the first time, not the Aronofsky film, but the Bong Joon-ho 2009 film. And it's excellent. Um, I This might actually be one of my favorite Bong Joon-ho films, at least top two or three, because it it's just um it might be his most it's definitely his most tragic and straightforward film. All a lot of his films have sort of a cheekiness or a wry sense of humor to it, but Mother is a real straightforward crime drama about a um a mother, a widow who has a mentally challenged son who gets uh, accused of murdering a young high school girl in their small town. And uh, she goes, embarks on this sort of quest to prove him innocent, and her obsession uh, eventually drives her to um, violence. And it's a, it's a tragedy of almost Greek scale. It's uh, it actually would be interesting as sort of a um, a double feature with um, Park Chan Wook's Old Boy because it de- it deals with similar um, obsessive protagonists but it has you know because it is about a mother there's definitely more of a uh empathetic touch to it and um the lead actress uh he he jack him is just really really phenomenal in this um there are shades of um memories of murder in this film because it does deal with a similar sort of unknown killer of 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 girls and it has somewhat of a similar premise or setup rather but uh it is just a really quietly devastating film and um it's um i feel like it's it's also interesting too because it's like it feels like later stage bong joon ho where he's very confident and assured in both his staging and camera techniques and it feels just like like you know how Parasite feels kind of the culmination of Bong Joon Ho's filmography, and uh, both of his um, genre bending styles and his uh, incredible blocking and camera work. But here it also it it does it on a much more subtle level that I really appreciated and I absolutely loved. Um, so if you guys love Parasite, Bong Joon Ho, definitely definitely check out Mother, and that's streaming on Hulu. Um, and I also checked out. Barking Dogs Never Bite, which is Bong Joon-ho's directorial debut. And it's very much on the opposite end of the spectrum as Mother. It's this first film. There's definitely a rough around the edges, shagginess to it. And um, there's a, it's an absurd 
dark comedy uh, about a um, aspiring professor. He's an academic who lives in this uh, apartment complex that is filled with uh, people who own a lot of very loud dogs. And he eventually gets fed up with all of the noise and starts kidnapping the dogs and uh, trying to kill them. Chris never watched this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've I was going to check this out at one point, and someone told me not to watch it yes. for those reasons. So I never will. It. Yes, it's it's unnerving and unpredictable, and it has that you know young director energy that he's Bong Joon Ho feels like he's trying to prove something, and he's trying so many different styles and eclectic uh, techniques, and it's it really it's really energizing and fun, um, but it is incredibly disturbing, especially in the way that um, in the treatment of the dogs, which none of the dogs were harmed in the making of the film, which there was a big subtitle at the beginning of the film saying no dogs were harmed, which is kind of a, a good uh, a indication of what kind of movie this is, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic and it, it is feels like very scrappy and um, yeah, real energized. So uh, Barking Dogs Never Bite, Chris never watch it, but everyone else who is interested <laughs> in um, uh, Bong Joon-ho and likes a good absurdist dark comedy, it actually kind of reminds me somewhat of um, uh, French uh, indie comedies, uh, whimsical comedies in the style of like Amélie. It's got that same kind of... Uh, I don't know, whimsy to it, but at the same time as being incredibly dark. But uh, that's Barking Dogs Never Bite, also on Hulu. If you guys want to complete a whole Bong Joon-ho uh, marathon. But speaking of my Bong Joon-ho marathon, I finished it off with The Host, which is a movie I've seen many times, actually many times just in this past year. I've been re-watching it quite a bit, and um, it was also made available on Hulu. And yeah, this movie rocks. It's great. Um I have nothing bad to say about it, nothing more to add because I feel like I've talked about it quite a bit on this on this podcast. Uh, but yeah, the host, fantastic, um, and that's yeah. Do your Bong Joon Ho marathon on Hulu. Another hot take: the host is good. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, like everyone else on this show, I finally decided to watch rewatch The Mask of Zorro because I had seen it before, and I actually tried to rewatch it a few weeks ago, but I was too drunk and I passed out. So over the weekend, I stayed sober enough to watch the whole thing through, and I have nothing new to add other than to say that this movie is so much fun, and I wish we could get more movies like this. Like I wish this was the type of movie. Marvel was churning out like every other month, you know, when there's always a new Marvel movie, I wish they were as like fun and silly and sexy and energetic as, as this movie is. And they're not. And that's a shame. And, uh, but it also makes this film extra special because there's not a lot of mainstream modern blockbusters that can hold a hit, a candle to this, unfortunately. Uh, then, um, we, my wife and I watched the Prince of Egypt, which was the the, the big first DreamWorks animated movie. Um, I had seen it, but my wife actually had never seen this. And uh, so we, we finally watched it together and man, this movie really holds up really well. It's uh, the, the songs are great. The animation is great. Uh, the storytelling, you know, even though it's obviously from, you know, the Bible is, is well done. It, it's just a, it holds up really well. And it's a shame that, after this DreamWorks was like, eh, let's make Shrek sequels. Like I wish they had made more stuff like this, but they didn't. And uh, what else? Oh, and I'm, so everyone has been talking By about. By the way, Chris, have you ever read, there's like that DreamWorks book that's out. No. 
No, you haven't read it. I, no. What do you know? What it's called, or what? what uh, is it about? Let me search. It's called the men who would be king. Yes. Okay. Oh, you should totally read this because you're a big Spielberg guy. But like, it goes into this in a major way. I think right. you would you would be totally interested. It's a great read, Chris. You'll well, love it. Well, that thank you for the recommendation. I, I might pick that up too. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I'm gonna have to read that um, because, and... because DreamWorks was kind of like envisioned as kind of like an elevate, like making elevated movies, and then they kind of like abandoned that really quickly. Yeah, they're yeah. trying to be like the well, more mature or edgy alternative to Disney, and ended up just going with the the Shrek. <laughs> Uh, brand essentially there are incredible stories from the book about the making of mouse hunt and how it almost killed gore verbinski it's a great great book all right i'm definitely gonna gonna read this now for sure um and finally so uh, i i've been seeing for a long time now people just talking about how great and how funny uh shit's creek is and uh since everything is very terrible and depressing right now my wife and i were looking for something uplifting and funny and new to watch so we finally started watching it we just finished the first season last night and um i will pretty much mirror what everyone else has said this show really is as good as people say it is it's really really funny um and i you know like i said i've only watched the first season i've heard it actually gets even better from there so i'm very excited to see where it goes but if if you like me have been putting this off and you're looking for something to uh cheer you up during these miserable times you should definitely check out Shit's creek which is uh the first five seasons are on netflix the, the sixth season which is the final one just ended and i hopefully they'll put that on netflix soon too very cool okay let's move on to what we've been eating brad what have you been eating this week well um the first thing i will talk about is a little easter thing that i found a while back and finally got around to trying it out uh, there was a, a Fruit Loops white chocolate bunny that was released uh, that is white chocolate that has uh, Fruit Loops pieces inside of it. And it was really, really good. Um, I, you know, if you like Fruit Loops as a cereal, you'll like the, the, um, how the, the flavor of the cereal mixes with the white chocolate. Um, I, I feel like it probably works better than it would be if it was regular chocolate, which is, which is great. Um, and yeah, I, I like that they've been doing some recent like expansion of, uh, Fruit Loops and using it in different like kinds of, uh, ways, you know, they've, they've had like Fruit Loops donuts out there and stuff like that. And so there's also, I have, um, another thing that I haven't tried yet, but I will talk about it soon, which was they, they came up with like a whole thing of like four Fruit Loops flavored, uh, peeps. And I normally don't like peeps, but I, I hope, I'm hoping that the, the Fruit Loops flavor might make them uh, taste a little bit better than normally because normally it's just a lot of granulated sugar. Yeah. Brad, Brad um, peeps, peeps are not good, but have you ever had the peeps that are covered in chocolate? Yeah, I, actually, those are the only ones that I genuinely yeah. do like. Yeah, because the, the, the chocolate helps bring down the amount of granulated sugar coating on the outside, and it's a good mix of... I think it's just because I like chocolate with marshmallow, though. So, I mean, you know, you can't go wrong there. Um, and then, so I, I got a... Um, a uh, a package um, from Australia. Um, a uh, a listener to my podcast, uh, Go Flix Yourself, actually was able to uh, send me something because. Um, I, so on on my podcast, Go Flix Yourself. If anybody who hasn't listened, we do this stupid thing where we have a sponsor that absolutely isn't a sponsor, and I always find one of the random new soft drinks or whatever that I talk about in this section of the podcast. And we do a stupidly extended uh, bit bit about it, and so because of this, uh, this listener 
um, at uh, Super Rockin on Twitter. Uh, his title name is Lando Rocks on there. He saw that the, um, in Australia they have new Mountain Dew flavored Doritos, and so he immediately was like, "Okay, well this is perfect for you guys." And he actually sent me uh, a package with that and some other things, uh, which makes up the rest of this um, section. And holy crap, Mountain Dew Doritos are the devil's work. They are atrocious. Like you, <laughs> what did they taste you, like? So you put it in your mouth, and initially you're like, oh, this is just kind of like um, a Tostitos chip with a hint of lime. But then all of a sudden, the, the, the faux artificial combination lemon-lime Mountain Dew flavor comes in, and you feel like you're eating like a, a toasted lime chip that has been sitting in the sun, and just oh, it is it is so strange and bad and weird, and I, I just I don't know whose idea this was, but it is awful. It's it's a, seriously one of the worst things I have I have ever tasted. I don't know who would like this, if it would even be good if you dipped it in anything. Uh, you know, I, I wonder maybe if it would be good if you dipped it in Mountain Dew, but I seriously doubt it. It is, oh man, I I knew they were going to be bad, but I was not prepared for how terrible these chips are. <laughs> that sounds that sounds gross. <laughs> they are, they are. Um, so, but I did get a couple other uh, really good things that I tried. Um, also down in Australia right now, they have uh, Kit Kats that have uh, bis little Biscoff cookies in them. Um, I love Biscoff cookies. For those of you who don't know, those are the cookies that Chris Evans eats in Knives Out, uh, very smugly, and they're delicious. I always get them when I'm on planes, and they put them inside Kit Kats, and they are incredible. Uh, the way it mixes with the chocolate and the wafer is just, it's, it's crispy, it's delicious, they're awesome. I hope that they come to the United States at some point because they're uh, just, they taste so good. And along with that, I also have I tried a Biscoff cookie spread, which is kind of like Nutella, but it, it's Biscoff-flavored uh, spread. And it is so good uh, on toast. And I, I've yet to try I'm sure I could like put it on ice cream or you know dip other uh, cookies or something in it. And, yeah, it is awesome. And that, that actually is available in the United States. Okay, very cool. Let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? Uh, I'm still looking for the next game to truly hook me post-Zelda. Uh, Breath of the Wild, which I beat last week, as I discussed. So I was poking around at a few smaller games. Uh, first one is uh, the remake of Crash Team Racing. The, you may remember back in the 90s, uh, Sony was very desperate to turn the character of Crash Bandicoot into their Mario, into like Sony's big you know, headlining character. And it didn't quite happen, even though I did love the Crash Bandicoot games back in the day. But part of their strategy for this was to give him his own kart racing game, like Mario Kart. And this new version, which is available on all the consoles, uh, I'm playing on Nintendo Switch. Uh, it's not just like a remaster where they sharpen it up. It's a full-on remake. It plays and feels and looks like a modern game. And back in the day, there were some people who argued that Crash Team Racing was better than Mario Kart. And uh, the new version is a strong argument for that. I'm not saying it's better than Mario Kart 8, which is the other big kart racing game on Nintendo Switch. But I say it's, it's different enough that they can both live side by side and be really excellent uh, racing games, very good casual games, very good multiplayer games. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, the character lineup may not be as you know familiar as Mario Kart because, you know, Mario has, you know, 
characters who everybody around the world knows, whereas Crash Bandicoot characters are pretty niche. But if you're like me and enjoyed the Crash Bandicoot games back in the day and, and enjoyed the Crash Bandicoot remakes from the, the core games from, I think, two years ago, maybe last year, uh, this is a really, really well-done version of that, and I'm having a good time revisiting it beyond nostalgia. It just actually really hooked me again. Uh, I'm also playing When Ski Lifts Go Wrong, a uh, puzzle game on the Switch. It, it My one complaint is that it feels very much built for a desktop, for a PC, for a, mo- for a mouse and keyboard setup. So navigating is a little bit tough at times, taking some practice and some muscle memory is not quite clicking for me. But as the name implies, it's a puzzle game where you're presented with a ski slope and you have a budget. You have to build a ski slope that doesn't kill everybody. And it is uh, uh, sometimes very funny, but mostly just a um, pretty tricky uh, brain-melting puzzle game where you have to find the best place to put your cables, best place to put your towers, best place to put your gears, and hopefully you don't kill all your skiers as they go up the, the hill. Uh, it's also, I think it was on sale for only a few bucks uh, as part of a big Nintendo Switch sale right now. So that's uh, when ski lifts go wrong. Very cool. Uh, on a previous episode of this podcast, we talked about Jacob was using Zoom playing uh, one of those Jackbox games to play virtually with his friends. Brad, you did a similar thing this week? Uh, yeah, so last time uh, I had a virtual sort of game night uh, across teleconferencing, it was Pictionary, and my parents and I figured out that we can do the same thing with categories, uh, because all it requires is that you have a list of uh, things to uh, write down. You can use your own pen and paper, as long as someone someone in your group has the game, uh, and you can easily play it across uh, Skype, Zoom, what have you, and it's it's a lot of fun. I, Me and my girlfriend played with some of our, our friends recently, in addition to my parents, uh, and it's just it, we we had a lot a lot of fun just like laughing at the different responses you come with, um, and it's yeah it's it's really enjoyable. Very cool. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast Slash Film Daily published three times a week on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you on Friday. Hey, hey, Peter. So, so Jacob, I've still been thinking about like what would be the best season to recommend to you for Survivor because I know you want to watch Survivor after I've oh, been yeah. recommending this for a long time. So, I, for sure. I, I'm trying to figure it out. I will well, get while back. You to you. That, while you figure that out, I think we should enjoy some. <laughs> Some quotes from the gargantuan book of insults, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, reposts, cost quips, and implied put downs by the master, the myth, the legend, the greatest <laughs> joke teller of all time, Louis A. Safian. I think that's the greatest joke of all, Jacob. You can't beat that. <laughs> well, I've opened the page 288, the failures section. <clears throat> Chris. Whenever opportunity knocks, instead of getting off your feet to open the door, you complain about the noise. <laughs> it's pretty good, actually. I like that one. Brad, watching an opulent-looking man stepping into his chauffeured Cadillac, you sighed, there but for me go I. Uh, wow, okay. Ben, he has a positive genius for taking a bankroll and running it into a shoestring. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. HT, sending her out to do a man's job is like sending a tadpole to tackle a whale. Oh. Whoa, damn. Wow, that's sexist. <laughs> it should be noted that Mr. Louis A. Safian defaults 
to the to male pronouns throughout this book, except for sections dedicated to women. So that was not an intentional sexist joke. <laughs> Just accidentally. Yeah. Uh, finally, uh, Peter, he had the world by the tail. Too bad he couldn't swing it. Uh, maybe it was the Tiger King tail? I don't know. Uh, Louis A. Safian approves. 